um, we've been, we're, we're talking through 2 Peter uh, from faith. By the way, on Wednesday nights, this is kind of a commercial, I'm going through the book of 2 Peter. If you've not been out, we're going to start back. We, last week we did, it was a spe- last Wednesday was a special Wednesday. We did Jesus and the Passover. Um, this Wednesday we'll be back in the book of 2 Peter. Uh, if you've not come out yet, I invite you to come out. On Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, we're going to be working through the, the whole book of 2 Peter. And some people say, wow, it's three chapters, the whole book, that's not much. We've been diving in, so we've been having some fun with it. Um, there's, a, there's a little bit more than first meets the eye. Uh, but there's a section in 2 Peter that we've been studying on Sunday mornings. And the, it's this eight qualities that... Um, that Peter says, if these qualities are in your life, if you develop these qualities in your life, you will always be effective and fruitful in knowing Jesus. You will always be effective and fruitful in, in your life here as we walk out the gospel. And so we've been looking at those qualities, um, and he introduces those eight qualities with, uh, with this verse here. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So the, the, the premise he's saying is literally everything that we need, everything that we need for life, everything that we need for godliness, it's granted to us. It's a gift. The, superna- the divine power, the supernatural power of Christ actually gives to us everything that we need for life and godliness. Anybody ever feel like they might need something for life and godliness? Or is that just me, like every day? Anyway, premise number two. He says the way that that occurs, the way that that is released in our lives is by knowing Christ. By the knowing Christ, and it's not knowing about him. It's not that I can just, you know, here's the gospel, I can recite these scriptures. It's that I've actually come to this place where I've heard his voice, I have responded to it, and I begin to walk in that relationship with him. There is, it's an intimacy, not a feeling, but an intimacy, meaning I have been introduced and I begin to walk with him in that. And is that means that he grants to us these things for life and godliness. And so what ultimately, premise three, uh, is the effect of that? What does that look like? What that looks like is we begin to live the glory and moral excellence of Jesus. The virtue of Jesus starts to come out of us. It's seen in us, it's seen through us, and we're growing in the grace and knowing Jesus. So this is what Peter is saying here. This is the premise of these eight qualities. So he talks about these eight qualities that if, and these are, these are put in, a, um, uh, in an increasing way, a stair-step way. He starts with faith. Uh, he, he goes on to say you need to add virtue to your faith. You need to add knowledge to your virtues, self-control to your knowledge, steadfastness to your uh, uh, self-control, godliness to steadfastness, brotherly affection to godliness, and ultimately love to brotherly affection. And, and it becomes this cycle of qualities that he says, keep doing these things. Keep working these things in your life. Keep seeking to understand what they are and how to live them. He says, now, if you do that, you'll be effective and you'll be fruitful and you, and you will get, it's, it's a guarantee your, your uh, um, uh, entry into the kingdom at the coming of Jesus. He refers to that. And, I mean, he actually has, puts it in a negative way as well. He says, if you don't do these things, you're actually, and I am actually nearsighted, you're blind and nearsighted it's, and forgot the, uh, uh, that you were actually saved from your sins. So he actually puts it. It's kind of strong and harsh. How, how, it's very passionate, very passionate, which I can appreciate Peter being passionate, being Sicilian. But anyway, you like how my son talks with his hands too? I noticed that. Kind of passed that on. 
<clears throat> so, um, so we studied, we've studied uh, faith and we went through faith. What is this? Before you can have a trust relationship, um, uh, um, we f- back up and say it this way. We first have to have trust in a relationship before we can grow close. I have to trust someone in order to grow in intimacy with them. If I don't trust them, I'm going to close off. I'm going to step back. This, in essence, is faith. This moment when we have heard his voice and we say, you know what? I'm going to trust him. Now, what is our trust point? And we, we spent a lot of time talking about this. The trust point's the cross. We know because of the cross, we can trust Jesus. And this will come up more and more as we study through this. The second uh, uh, quality is virtue. And so this morning, I'm going to share a few things about virtue to, to kind of close up our conversation on this. We've been talking about it uh, a couple of Sundays. Um, so what is virtue? Is moral excellence. Moral excellence. Now, this is what we've been called to. We have been called to the moral excellence and glory of Jesus. And uh, we've been using a definition, working from a definition that, um, uh, that I got from Jordan Peterson. He's a, um, a psychologist. He's a, uh, I'm going to recommend this again. If you go to YouTube and you look up his lecture on virtue as a necessity, highly recommend that. It's one of the best lectures on virtue I've ever heard. Um, and I, and uh, I, I like, I'm borrowing some of the quotes that, from that lecture in, in some of the teaching here. And this is one of them. Virtue, uh, the, which is the moral excellent character to which we've been called. Virtue is what? It's a state of being. A state of being. It's not something simply that we do. It's a mode of being in which all the fields of study rest. It's a mode of being in which everything you do in your life rests. The way you understand yourself or fail to. The way you understand other people or fail to. And more deeply than that, what is the role that you play in, in your life in the world? That's virtue. And so you can't really determine what constitutes virtue until you determine what constitutes being. Do you hear? This is, this is let me tell you why this is such an amazing definition to me. It's such an amazing definition because he's, what he's saying is at heart, we are a moral being. We're not a neutral being. At heart, we are a moral being. And from that perspective, it affects everything. It affects every study, possible field of study. We look at everything from, from its moral attributes. That's either right or wrong. It's either good or bad. It affects how you see yourself. It affects how you see others. It affects how you live your life. It's not just something we study. It's not something we do. It's the essence of who we are. Being, when we talk about being, it references the essential nature of something. I've said this before, I'll say, and I'll keep repeating it. We're human beings, not human doings. Anybody ever feel like a human doing? When you have the list of things you have to do, you feel like a human doing. But virtue, moral excellence, it, it is literally the essential nature of our ease existence. Why don't you catch these next few phrases? We're not morally neutral. There is a moral mandate to our very existence. And no human being is free of that moral mandate. We're free to make choices. But guess what? We're not actually free to make an immoral choice. We can make an immoral choice. 
but there are consequences to it, aren't there? This is huge. If you want to understand virtue, it is the essential nature of our being. We are moral beings. We are uh, uh, created uh, uh, free, which, which is a necessary component of being a moral being. If I can't choose it, it wasn't actually moral. If I can't choose it, it wasn't moral. But that doesn't make me free from being moral. And that's the important dif- uh, distinction that our choice gives us. This is huge. This is what it means when it says we are created in the image of God. Is God a moral being? Would anybody doubt that God in and of itself, in and of himself is not a moral being? No, he is the essence of morality. It all extends from his character and nature. Does, does God make choices and decisions? that are moral in nature. Yes, other, uh, you know, otherwise Jesus is in the wilderness, the temptation wouldn't be a temptation. It's not a temptation if he doesn't have to choose what is right. So yes, he chooses what is right. He has the, the ability to make those choices. Is he ever free to not choose what is right? No, in fact, he can't. It would go against the essence of his character and nature. He gives us the option so that we can demonstrate his character and nature. Do y'all catch this? Because we live in a world that says something very different. See, this is, this is nothing new. What I'm telling you is absolutely nothing new. Ancient philosophers and moralists, you can find this in pantheism, you can find this in Greek philosophy. This, what I'm telling you, they, they will tell you this, they have recognized that the fundamental elements of our being are the good, the true, and the beautiful. The good, the true, and the beautiful. Try to take one of those away. When you take good away and you have truth, what do you have? You have something morally repugnant. All you're doing is forcing people into something. Take good away and try to have the beautiful. When you have beautiful without morality, what do you have? Perversion. But where do we find all three of these together? Let's look at this scripture. This is the Apostle Paul quoting from the prophet. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good, moral, news, truth. The good, the beautiful, and the true. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. So understanding that we are a moral being helps us understand why we cannot earn our salvation, why you can't earn your way into the kingdom of God. Think about it for a minute, okay? If every, if every moral choice that I make is something I'm supposed to do, it's an ought, something I ought to do, then there's no moral choice that I can make that actually earns or benefits me. Why? Because I was already supposed to make that choice. I mean, there's a, think of it this way. If a worker goes to work and does his job and, and meets his quota, does he deserve a bonus? If, if a worker goes to work and, and, and she does exactly what she's supposed to do and meets expectations, does she deserve a bonus? No, we don't go, oh man, you know, great job of doing what you're supposed to do. You're getting paid for that. Now I'm going to give you a bonus because you did what you're supposed to do. Jesus even talks about this, but I'm, I'll make it, yeah, I'm, uh, which way do I want to go first? 
We'll do this example first. Think about this for a minute. I want you to, you ever seen the, the scale justice is blind? How many have seen the scale justice is blind? All right, you see it and there's a scale like this. This is the way a lot of us have it pictured. We have it pictured like this. I'm gonna picture scale and it's like, okay, I do something good. We see ourselves as morally neutral. I'm morally neutral, I do something good, that weighs for me on this side. But now I do something bad, it puts me over here on this side. This is moral neutrality. All my good deeds, all my bad deeds, and I'm just hoping my good outweigh my bad. That's moral neutrality. However, here's the problem. Here's the problem. If I'm not morally neutral, if I am actually a moral being, in other words, I am supposed to do what is good, what is beautiful, what is true. If I'm supposed to do that, and now all of a sudden I do something that I'm not supposed to do, it goes on the scale. So I'm going to go find something to make up for it. Well, I'll do that. Oh, I'm supposed to do that. Mm. Well, I'll do this. No, I'm supposed to do that. Mm. Well, I'll do this. Mm, no, that won't go there either. Mm. Well, I'll do this. No, that won't. And then we do something else. And then we do something else. And then we do something else. Where can I ever earn my way out of that? How can I ever earn my way out of that? Jesus shared a parable about this. He said this, he says, will any one of you, this is in Luke 17, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him who has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table. So here's a, he's saying, look, you got a servant out in the field. They're working for you. You're paying them. They're your servant. And when they're done, they say, hey, come on in, sit at the table, take it easy, kick back. He says, no. He says, will, will he rather not say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you shall eat and drink. Does he thank his servant because he did what was commanded? No, no, look, he's not talking about courtesy here. He's not talking about common courtesy and treating people with dignity. He's saying when you pay somebody to do something, you don't all automatically turn around and go, man, you're just such a great person for doing what you should have done. That's his point. This is Jesus saying this. What does he say? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. We are not morally neutral. We are moral beings. Now, if this is true, how great is the moral debt to which we've amassed for which we can't do anything? How much is on your scale that you can't make up for? See, but that's not how we measure we measure one to another. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I, yeah, I've done some, but not like that guy. Oh my goodness, no, that's evil. Especially when they come walking in church. <laughs> what are they doing in here? There's a, um, so a rabbi tells a story like this. He says, if I have an apple, and you've heard me share this before, I'm gonna, but I'm, you know, I'm old. I share my same stories over and over again. So ask my family. They'll quote it for you. There's a rabbi has an apple, right? 
And he says this. He says, if I take that apple and I cut it in half, what do I have in the middle of the apple inside the core? Seeds. So I have how many apples? One, one apple, and I have seeds on the inside. If I take those seeds and say I have five seeds and I plant five seeds, let's say I have really good soil and five trees come up, how many apples do I have now? Okay, but the seeds inside of those, how many apples now? Then the seeds inside of, I mean, in a couple of generations, you literally can't count all the apples. He's saying, that is a picture of our sin. We don't sin in isolation. We are moral beings. There is a moral oughtness, which means we are all interconnected. And so when I do something that I ought not to do, it not only affects me, it affects other people. And when it affects them, it affects on and affects on. So I could be dead, buried, and gone, and there'd be generations who are sinning because of that. You don't think that's true? Why do we say we're under the sin of Adam? Is it any less true for us than it was for Adam? We like to jump on Adam and Eve and say, why'd you screw it up for us? Do we ever jump on us and say, why are we screwing it up for everybody after us? Peterson said this in his, um, in his lecture. He says this, he says, there's a consequences to the lack of virtue. Lack of virtue makes people ill. He said this, he says, as a clinical psychologist... Peterson has found that among his clients, this is what he said, to the degree that they are embedded in a network of relationships, to the degree that they are embedded and intertwined in a network of relationships where virtue is fundamentally absent, there's no virtue, they are tortured and tormented and unable to find firm ground. And that's a secular psychologist. It's like he gets the gospel, man. He gets it. Let me ask this. Does this not explain the state of the world? Why? Why do I ask it? Because we want to be what? We want to be free of moral constraints. Worse, we're like Cain. We're like Cain because we want to call moral constraints evil and cast them off. We we talked a couple of weeks now about materialists and how materialists deny that they exist. Well, no wonder they deny they exist. If you're a thinker and you've thought about these things and you understand these things, isn't it much better to say, well, that just ain't real? Because then you have to live under it. That's just not real. That's not a real thing. I don't want to live under that. Or or we we, we can be like... Those who crucified Jesus and said, he's got the devil. And call what's evil good and what's good evil. This should break our hearts. Not cause us to be bitter, not cause us to be angry, because that is the heart of Jesus about this. The heart of Jesus is not to to condemn. He says, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save the world. It's not to condemn, it's not even to make us feel bad, it's not to make us feel guilty, it's not to make us to feel guilty, it's to make us to realize we are guilty, and there's all the difference in the world between the two. So, thus, we've talked about this quite a bit, being itself has become suffering. Is anybody alive in this world that doesn't know being alive means I'm going to suffer in some way? 
Well, where do you think it comes from? All right. Now, what makes this even greater, like, okay, you know, enough already. Isn't this great enough? What makes this even greater is when we actually begin to realize how much our life counts. You see, you are not insignificant. We, it's so easy to see ourselves as this small infinitesimal uh, a part of creation that really doesn't make a whole lot of difference in the grand scheme of things. What does it matter if I do this or if I do that? I don't really count anyway. There, you know, I'm not a mover and a shaker. My life doesn't really matter. If that were true, let me ask you a question. Do you realize this? I quoted this before, but I love these numbers because they just wake us up. If you know 1,000 people, and trust me, it's not hard to sit down and realize you know 1,000 people. And someone else knows a thousand people. Do you know that you're only two people away from a million people? That's how many lives you're affecting. And if you know three people who know a thousand people, you're only three people away from a billion people. Now let's look at this in the, in, in the span of time, because the other way we do this is we, you know, we think of time and we think, you know, eons and eons and eons. Okay, well, let's just take time from the time of Abraham. If we just measure this from the time of Abraham, if we just go from that period of time, what do we see? Uh, where's my statistic? The average lifespan w- will span almost 2% of history since Abraham. If you live 70 years, you are literally living 2% of all of the history of mankind since Abraham. That's significant. If you go back to the the biblical time of of Adam and you count the years, still 1%, you still, your life is still the lifespan of 1% of all humanity. That is a long time to affect others. All right. So virtue, if I'm called to the virtue of Jesus, if I'm called to his excellence, and I take any moment to have a real honest evaluation of myself, to look at how far I am from any real expression of living out the moral excellence of Jesus, and that's my calling, as we've used as our premise the last few weeks, that's a problem, isn't it? Why? Because on the one hand, when I'm honest, I look at all this and I see all this and I see how far I am from his moral excellence. But honesty itself, moral excellence itself calls me to actually look at all this and see this or I'm not being morally excellent. And when I do that, I see on this one hand, this scale that's way over here. I see these, these seeds that I've planted. You know, Paul talks about that. Um, uh, do not be deceived. What you plant, you will reap. He talks about these... See these seeds that I've planted, and I go, oh my goodness. You know, I look at stories like Jesus talking about he who has the first sin and cast the stone. You see the old guys walking away first, and I go, man, I feel that. I look at all this, and then I go on the other hand, go, well, but I want to be honest. I want to live. I want to exude the moral excellence of Jesus. So, so how does all this gel together? Where does it come together? And I'm going to tell you, it comes together in one word. It comes together in the word grace. Grace. I would submit to you the greatest attribute of the character and nature of God is his love, and that is Nowhere demonstrated bigger than grace itself. 
Now, unfortunately, grace has been sold so often as license. Grace is not license. Grace isn't grace so that, hey, look, you know, I actually, well, I won't go there. Uh, I've run into people who have actually said, I can go do this and go do that and go do this and live how I want because I know all I need to do is just say, hey, God, forgive me, and he will. That's license, and Paul, the Apostle Paul curses that. He say, may it never be, may you not even have that kind of thinking. What, however, on the flip side, I'm going to take you to a prayer um, from Tozer, from A.W. Tozer in his book, A Cloud by Day and a Fire by Night. I must trust him to make my efforts efficacious in becoming like him is the, the section I'm at right now. I'm going down to the prayer where we pray. And this is the prayer. He says this. We pray that thou wilt help us to be humbled in our own unworthiness in the knowledge and haunting memories of our sins committed. So he's starting off his prayer saying, listen, let me not run away from what I've done. Let me humble myself and be honest. Let me get real, authentic. But then he says this. There are many but they do not in any wise compromise our relationship with thee. Oh my goodness. Thy grace is sufficient to release us from those penalties in the past. We love thee and we desire to live in a way that will bless thee. Help us, O Father, to understand thy word and help us to apply it in our daily lives. We pray in Jesus' name. You see, when I come before the grace of Jesus, when I contemplate the cross, it calls me to be 100% authentic, real, and honest before him. And know that his grace is so unfathomable, so rich, so deep, that he didn't just put up with the cross, he embraced the cross. He embraced the cross. You see, because at that place of the cross flows a blood that can wash away that can actually clean our consciousness. How many would like a clean conscience? At the cross, there is the blood of Jesus that when we, when we continue to come back for that washing and that cleansing and that refreshing, it changes us. What he does when we come into that presence is he chisels the old dead flesh off of us, it dies, it falls, and more Jesus begins to come out. More Jesus becomes to come out. He transforms us. I'm sitting there with this scale. I don't have to put anything on this side because he takes everything off of it. It's not about me figuring out what I put on it. It's about me giving this to him so that now I can stand upright. Do you see this? When we get a hold of this, 
we actually find that our weakness is turned into power. 2 Corinthians. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient. That sufficient means, it's, it's, it doesn't mean, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean barely enough. It's like, it'll just take care of it. Don't worry about it, this will take care of it. That's not what it means. It means it is overflowing in its ability to what? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Jesus, I bring to you my weaknesses. I stand before you today not boasting about how great I am. I stand before you today boasting about how great is his power that washes me, that cleanses me. In my weakness, he's made strong. So let me close with this. We're out of time this morning. Um, I love this quote. Since we started with quotes, I'll, I'll end with this quote and I'll end with a scripture. Virtue at first is the attempt to see heaven. When you see virtue, we see it in Jesus. Virtue is secondly the attempt to live it. When we find ourselves falling short, we see Jesus. There's nothing better for our being or others. And this scripture here, I didn't put it in my notes. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but also more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I may have heard that before. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If I just stop there, that's like not a good place to be. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that brings us full circle because when we come to him in faith, he works out the character and nature of Christ in us. We put the effort into resting. He puts in bringing the virtue out. Amen.